0: No change without struggle, no one, no one in, power in power ain't giving
1: up nothing. No change without
0: struggle, no one in power. WORT 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, welcome to a public affair. I am D Dinor. Today, our guest is Anthony Lowenstein. He is an Australian independent freelance journalist, author, documentarian and blogger. He has written for The Guardian, Washington Post, New Statesman, Al Jazeera, Huffington Post and many more publications. He's a columnist for The Guardian and uh, we'll be talking today about his brand new book. I mentioned it before, Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. Very um important book I think. Very interesting. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. How are you?
0: It's um I'm I'm fine and it's it's a pleasure to have you. So the uh, main th- argument of your book is basically that disaster is big business.
1: Tell us about that. In short. Absolutely. So one of the the themes of the book is that people are making money from misery. Now, this is not in itself a new thing. There's been individuals and uh, organizations, corporations for hundreds of years making a lot of money, possibly the most infamous was the East India Company, which was arguably the first disaster capitalist corporation many years ago. I think what's changed in the last 30 years is the globalized nature of these corporations and the connection between many of these corporations. So in the book, I've traveled in the last five years to Afghanistan, Haiti, Papua New Guinea, Pakistan, uh, the US, UK, Greece. And Australia and all these countries of course are very different I'm not saying they're all exactly the same but what I am arguing in areas of say immigration refugees um, war detention uh, aid and development and mining how often remarkably similar companies are involved in many different countries and how the corporation has become more powerful than the state and why I think that's deeply problematic and I go into various uh, explanations of why that is the case and i think ultimately the message is and this often people say it sounds very depressing that I, I don't give people any hope and i guess what i'd say to people is that yes i know i'm reporting some pretty bleak realities and you know you go to a place like afghanistan and i've been there twice in the last 3 years it's pretty ugly um there's no way to ignore the reality of what's happening there the country's been at war for nearly 40 years but I think what we can do, both as, both as journalists or activists or citizens, is to listen to local voices that are in those countries, which too often the media does not do.
0: hmm Mm-hmm. And that is what we are here for. Um, journalists and like clearly. you and, and radio stations like, um, WORT, um, really are, uh, well, there's also some, some written publications, online publications, but, uh, really the last bastions, I think, of, um, of truth telling and, and of revealing the dark undersides of um, what is often presented as a very sunny state of capitalism.
1: I think that's true. and I think there's what's sort of ironic in a way about this debate is that um, if you read so much of the mainstream press, there's, I think, a feeling that um, some mainstream politicians, this would be the Democrats or the Republicans here in the U.S., that somehow they even, they might acknowledge, yes, there are some problems here and there, but ultimately capitalism has been wonderfully enriching and it's helped millions of people come out of poverty. And there's a degree of truth here and there that certainly market policies now and then have helped people. That's true. However, and it's a very important however. The truth is that in America and in many other countries that I've reported on, and I said I'm from Australia, people can probably recognize my accent, mm-hmm. in the last 30 years there really has been a deep, Um, collapse in the ability for many citizens to uh, have higher wages, to actually have a better standard of living. In fact, in most Western countries now, in study after study, the majority of people say that they fear that their children will not have a better life, and better world than they do. That's a pretty depressing state of affairs. You always hope that your children will inherit a better world and a better reality than you. That is not a sentiment felt by a lot of people in America, Australia, England, etc. And that's not solely because of capitalism. It's not. But I think it's partly about a range of policies that have been enacted by both sides of politics. So it doesn't really matter in the U.S., whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, there are differences, I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but on a lot of these questions, there is very little difference. And when Obama, for example, was a candidate in 2007 for president, he pledged, like so many things with him, he spoke very nicely, he didn't do very much when he got into office, um, to unwind a lot of the massive uh, corrupt contracting, for example, that's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan during the Bush years. For listeners who may be aware, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of them are outsourced to private corporations mm-hmm. for massive profits, even though the war, of course, both wars have been an unmitigated disaster for the U.S., but more importantly for civilians in both countries. Obama pledged to change that, to unwind that, uh, to fix that. Suffice to say, that hasn't happened, and in fact, the contracting has only got worse during his time in office. Mm-hmm. So... It really goes to the heart, I think, about these issues are structural. And until we actually, I think, demand, for example, serious campaign finance reform here in the U.S. and equivalent issues in Britain and Australia and elsewhere, not much will change.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, before we, we go um, into the, the meat of your book, if you will, um, you mentioned the East mm-hmm. India Company. Tell us about it. What What was it? What did it do? Um, How was it the harbinger of what's going on nowadays?
1: So the East India Company was essentially uh, an organisation that was able to cause a lot of carnage in India, particularly in other parts of Asia. This was happening in the 1800s and uh, onwards. They were a company that had a lot of influence from Britain, which, of course, back then was the, I guess you'd say, the ruler of the world. It was the America of its day. It was the key global empire. Mm -hmm. The way it made money and the way it essentially benefited financially was to exploit local workers to produce a range of goods and also to steal a great deal of local riches for profit. Um, The reason, I guess, I called it uh, the world's first disaster capitalist is that it was remarkably successful to some extent in what I was doing. From its own perspective, obviously I don't agree with what I was doing, but it was very profitable for a long period of time, and that was because a great deal of politicians in the UK and Britain were very happy with that arrangement. Of course, back in those days, communication was radically different to today. The knowledge, to some extent, wasn't as great about what's happening on the other side of the world Easternly. Of course, it was very different, but people in Britain, or politicians at least, who were empowering the East India Company, they knew what was going on. It wasn't exactly a secret. And they were able to make huge amounts of profit in the process for doing so. And even back then, like we see today, the corporation was giving massive amounts of donations to various politicians. And I think this really goes to the heart of the problem with the way that contracting and outsourcing works, that much of the money that sort of operates in the US is legal. I'm not suggesting that there is mass illegality. There is Mm -hmm. corruption and there is illegality, to be sure, and that's clearly a very bad thing. But a lot of the money that corporations are giving to politicians is legal. And you only have to look, for example, at the 2016 presidential uh, election campaign here in the U.S. Three major candidates, Hillary Clinton from the Democrats, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush from the Republicans, all three of those individuals have taken a great amount of money from the private prison industry, the private immigration industry. That's, that's organizations and corporations such as CCA and Geo Group, two of America's largest private prison and private immigration detention center corporations. They're the ones that often run the centers that immigrants are housed in or warehoused in, or where a lot of prisoners, America, of course, the listeners will know, has the world's largest incarceration population by far, I mean mm-hmm. by far, far, far greater than any other country in the world, those corporations have given huge amounts of money to those three candidates, and again, that's done legally, completely legally, and one can't help but think and the evidence is there that obviously affects their view about how they see those kind of key issues prison reform, immigration reform. I mean just a few weeks ago, listeners might be have heard Bernie Sanders, who's obviously running on the democratic side pledge to try to eradicate private prisons and private immigration centres entirely. It was a great suggestion. It's not going to probably happen next week or the, year, the week after, but it's an important injection into the debate because essentially it says, do we as a society, do, do Americans, do Australians, do English people, want to have a society where the most vulnerable people, the mentally ill, prisoners, immigrants, are warehoused in facilities with the worst care. And that's not my opinion, that's a, based on my own reporting that appears in the book, but also countless reports. Healthcare is poor in these centres, food is poor, mental health care is poor. That's the reality, and I think that's the sort of society that we should not want.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we actually discussed this just um, a few weeks ago when we talked about the. Um, um, immigrant, uh, crisis here in the United States, which is, which is yeah. much less in the, um, headlines than the one, uh, currently going on in Europe. But, but we did talk yeah. with two women who both have experience with, um, the situation in the, um, in the American southern border. And it was one of the shows after which my, uh, receptionist Lois, looked at me with big eyes and said you know your shows are really good but they're really depressing <laughs> right. but yeah. um but yeah so so since you are talking about it um why don't you discuss that this is uh, a part of your book the the proliferation of um private prisons, uh, both here and in Australia and also in other places. Explain yeah. how that part—that that is part of disaster capitalism and how um, corporations and, and the people who are involved in them making large amounts of money out of the miser- misery of others.
1: So I should definitely start this little conversation by saying that I'm not arguing in the book Or on this conversation that if all prisons and detention centers for immigrants were run by the state everything would be fine I'm not saying that at all and I talk about in the book that the issue really the ultimate issue is a mass incarceration culture which says that the solution to America's problems or Australia's problems or Britain's problems or Europe's problems is to lock people up either indefinitely or for a long time in the deluded hope that somehow that's going to be deterrent, that more people won't be coming from Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan, which is delusional because those countries, as everyone knows, have collapsed and people are fleeing for their lives. So those flows of people will continue, sadly, for the foreseeable future. So in the last 30 or 40 years, um, there's been a political shift. It started in the US and the UK that said that the state should be involved in far less services. So we should therefore outsource them to private corporations. They can do a much better job and a cheaper job. That was the argument, a much more efficient job. So in America in the 80s and the UK at about the same time, a number of prisons started being outsourced, privatized, immigration detention centers the same. The result, 30, 40 years on, is that many of these centers now are almost warehouses for human rights abuses. I've spent time in, not as a a prisoner, but as a journalist, visiting a number of these facilities in both the US and the UK. And one thing that you see time and time and time again is not just the prisoners or the inmates or the immigrants themselves saying that their health care is bad, their food is awful, their ability to have a decent life is appalling, but the guards themselves who work in those centres are routinely given little training whatsoever because ultimately it's a for-profit company that we're talking about. Why would a for-profit company actually want to train their staff well? Why would they want to give inmates proper health care? Why would they want to give them good food? The fact is they don't because that's going to cost them more money. That's the brutal economic reality. So you have a mass incarceration culture. You have in the US, as listeners will probably be aware, probably around 2.3 million Americans who are incarcerated every night in the US behind bars. You have about 6 million who are in some form of um, judicial uh, involvement. That is an insane number of people. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. And the numbers of people are predominantly, as of course we know, minorities, African Americans, Hispanics, etc. It's not mostly white people. There are obviously whites in prison, but predominantly it affects, because of appalling drug laws and other areas, disproportionately affects minorities. Private prison companies, both for uh, jailing and for immigrants, have spent decades lobbying and playing the system, again, legally. So, for example, I talk about in the book, listeners may, be, may remember a few years ago, there was a very draconian anti-immigration law put forth in Arizona, essentially giving authorities the power to stop and search people who they thought might be immigrants or so-called illegals. The drafting of that legislation had a massive input from private immigration companies because they knew that if you incarcerate people in Arizona, they're going to go into their centres, and that therefore makes the money. That's how it works. Again, legally this is done, and it's pretty concerning to me, and I think many Americans, when they find out about this, that this kind of reality can happen, and it mostly happens behind closed doors. and mostly happens with no press. There are some journalists who write about it, to be sure, but the majority do not. And I think ultimately it really has... Uh, comes up now in the U.S. presidential campaign, apart from, as I said, the proposal from Bernie Sanders and the deeply problematic money from the private prison companies for Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, because Donald Trump, who, as listeners will be aware, is the Republican candidate and could well be the nominee. Mm. We have no idea. It's not impossible, not impossible at all, on the Republican side. His plan, of course, is to expel roughly 11 million undocumented migrants, and there's no doubt that many of the private prison companies and private immigration companies would love, love Mm a Donald Trump presidency because a lot of people are going to be rounded up. I mean, the fact that it's incomprehensible how it would actually work, and I'm not suggesting it's practical and it's an insane idea, but it's on the table as a serious proposal. He has put it forward as a serious policy, and that's, I think, why many aggrieved American whites find his message appealing private prison companies lick their lips in anticipation of a Donald Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty scary prospect, and I think people should be aware of who would be financially benefiting from such a policy.
0: My guest is Anthony Lowenstein, Lowenstein, independent journalist and documentary filmmaker with a column in The Guardian, he has written three books, My Israel Question, and we'll talk about um, Israel later, The Blogging Revolution and Prophets of Doom, and uh, he's co-editor of After Zionism and Left Turn, co-author of For God's Sake, and we are talking about his book, Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, and we'll we'll turn here in a minute to um, some aspects that are... Listeners may be less familiar with. We have been talking a lot um, in recent years about uh, climate change. And of course, we see its results all over the world, um, really in many, many different places. Um, we have talked to prominent scientists who say that much of it is uh, non-reversible. we I, I, It seems that there is some hope for um, some salvation, if you will, if um, we change our ways right away. But you say that there is no... Or you quote, um, again, Randers, who says that... Uh, There's no reason for capitalists to want to reverse climate change, even though they too live on this earth and uh, eventually will be affected by the consequences themselves.
1: Yeah, look, it's a really sad indictment, isn't it? I think one of the things that uh, the book is not about climate change, and certainly listeners interested in this, and I'm guessing maybe you've talked about this before, that Naomi Klein, who inspired... My new book, her her recent book, This Changes Everything, is all about this very question. Her book and her film, which is just coming out now, I think, around the U.S., so I'd encourage listeners to check that out, too. She really goes to the heart of this question, which is that the price of actually changing our ways, our ways meaning obviously the stopping of burning fossil fuels, but also our lifestyle is there are a lot of corporations and individuals who are making a lot of money from the status quo remaining as it is. Let me give you a few quick examples. So, for example, in parts of the U.S., there might be a natural disaster. Um, You can pay, for example, in California uh, for services of a private firefighting service. So Mm -hmm. let's say there's a fire and there's two houses next to each other and you didn't pay the service and the house next to you did your house could burn down and the house next to you could be saved. That is how it's working today. Now, obviously, if there's a fire next to each other, they could both burn down. But my point is that all these services, private security after natural disaster, um, firefighting services, I said, after natural disaster, that's just two of the examples. There's obviously, a lot of people who are currently um, investing huge amounts of money in buying up viable land around the world as uh, climate change clearly is causing massive deforestation and also desertification, that the ability to plant viable crops, buying up that land. I've been living this year in South Sudan, which has has its own appalling, catastrophic civil war at the moment. Mm -hmm. There are vast parts of East Africa where South Sudan is located, where a lot of Western interests are buying up viable land for food production. Now, again, this is all done under the guise, really, of ignoring climate change because you're not solving any problems by almost building a cocoon around you. I think the the quote I have in the book is that the forces that want to maintain the status quo will certainly not change our ways of life are very powerful. Now, whether they're too powerful to change I don't know. Naomi Klein argues that with the current economic system, it's impossible because essentially there's no real incentive to do so. I agree with that. I think a lot of us who are worried about climate change, and a lot of people are, will say what actually is going to be an event or some kind of reason for our politicians, many in the media, to actually realise that radical change is required. And the truth of the matter is that I find it hard to imagine what that reason is. You could say that disasters become more intense, that there's more appalling catastrophes, that there are worse hurricanes. All that's true, but in the last 10 years in the US, just America alone, you could count at least two or three major disasters. Hurricane Katrina is one, Hurricane Sandy was another, There are constant hurricanes, as you would know better than me, around the US. I'm Mm -hmm. not saying they're all solely caused by climate change, but it obviously has, it's obviously a factor. Um, this is happening and I don't really see any serious political action to deal with it. Obama has made slight moves here and there, a little bit to be sure, but not really very much. Listeners will be aware that he recently gave permission for Shell to investigate oil in the Arctic, although Shell itself thankfully made a decision after getting permission that it was going to be too costly to do so and they pulled out of their project mm-hmm. about a month ago, which I was happy to read. But Obama gave them permission to do so in the first place, you know. So you can't on the one hand, as a US president pledging, so he claims, to believe in climate change action say, yes, I believe in climate change action, while at the same time allowing a publishing right. company like Shell to investigate the Arctic. I mean, this is the issue. And I think ultimately, at the moment at least, I don't really see any major 2016 presidential candidate talking about climate change, telling the mainstream politicians. I don't. Tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not saying none of them have mentioned. Hillary Clinton has made some comments, to be sure, but her backers uh, and her funders are pretty much the corporations that have caused the problem in the first place. So it's hard to have a great deal of faith, as they were for Obama as well. So until there's a real break, on, I think, a really pretty corrupt two-party system here. And I don't say that just because I'm not American. I say that about my country in Australia and in Britain as well, and pretty much all two-party countries. Australia does have quite a powerful Greens Party, more so than many other nations, but they're Mm -hmm. not as powerful as I would like them to be. Until that really changes, we have a problem, because the interests that are aligned to support Maintaining the status quo are very very strong.
0: hmm and um, Anthony we have a um, Caller for you. Hi, Tyler you're on the air
1: All right. Hi, thank you for taking my call and thank you for having this conversation today mm-hmm. um, I was just calling to find out if either of you have heard of Lawrence Lessig. He's a Harvard University mm-hmm. professor That's running for president on a campaign finance reform ticket basically and I just wanted to hear Absolutely. what you thought about him and let other people know about him, and I'll take my answer off the air. Yes, thank you, Anthony. Absolutely. Um, I have heard about his his proposed campaign. I think it's a wonderful idea. I wish it got more traction than it did. I think that really, certainly in America, and not everything I've written about is about the U.S., but certainly on the issues of it, in the U.S., whether it's private prisons or very many other areas, Campaign finance is arguably not the only issue, but one of the top issues. If you remove the incentive, or at least a vast majority of money that's coming from corporations, and let's not forget the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, a few years ago, pretty much legalized the mass increase in, in legalized money, both to Republicans and Democrats. I think Lessig's campaign is important. I wish it got more support, and I hope more people Google it after this conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. Disaster capitalism, making a killing out of catastrophe by Anthony Loewenstein, who is our guest today. And let's ask you about um, some of these things that um, are less um, well-known. Papua New Guinea and Bougainville. um, How... Tell us about that place. Um, I think very few Americans are aware of it. Of course, Australians are more aware. And how disaster capitalism has been manifesting there?
1: So Papua New Guinea is a country to the north of my country, Australia. It is one of the most beautiful countries in the world and also one of the richest countries in the world. However, richest in terms of resources, but also one of the poorest which is something that I examine a lot in the book, where nations that routinely are incredibly rich in resources or oil or gas or whatever they may be are routinely exploited for those resources, and Papua New Guinea, sadly, is one of those. Bougainville is a province of Papua New Guinea, and Bougainville is this beautiful area. Um, The the, the capital of um, Papua New Guinea is Port Moresby. It's a few hours away by plane. Bougainville was the site of the world's largest copper mine, uh, run by Rio Tinto, the large multinational mining company. It opened in the 70s, and by the 1980s, many locals realized, they realized early on, but it became a lot stronger case, they were not getting any benefits from the mine. The mine was polluting the area incredibly, they were not getting proper wages, they were being shafted, essentially. Um, a revolution happened. Um, Locals rose up and fought Rio Tinto and the company for 10 years. It's one of the few examples that I can really think of, and I spent time in Boganville in the last years. One of the few examples I can think of, certainly in my part of the world, my part of the world being Asia Pacific, but also elsewhere of locals rising up in a major way and winning. I'm not saying it never happens, it does, but it was a brutal, brutal war. Up to 20,000 people were killed um, Rio Tinto got assistance from the Papua New Guinea Guine government, the Australian government, the American government, the British government, and despite that, the locals still won, but at an incredibly high price. Bougainville was really destroyed as an area, and fast forward now to the 21st century, and you visit Bougainville today, and it feels like time has stood still, that nothing much has changed in 25 years, essentially since the war ended, and it's made worse by the fact that there are now serious moves to reopen the mine, mm-hmm. principally because one of the deals that was struck to end the war in the 1990s was to allow Bougainville to have an independence vote. Independ- Bougainville would like to be independent from Papua New Guinea. and An independence vote will happen between 2015 and 2020, and those who are pushing for independence the strongest argue that the only way that Bougainville can be independent is if it, opens, it reopens the Rio Tinto mine, despite the fact that the majority of Bougainvillians are opposed to it, despite the fact that Rio Tinto has not done any cleanup, despite the fact that there's no serious indication of the mine situation being any different the second time. I guess the reason I wanted to research this issue is, A, because I think a lot of people should know about it. Secondly, mm-hmm. I think it shows really in a very in a strong way, in a really graphic way, that A, it's possible to resist incredibly rapacious mining interests, but also to show that these interests almost never die. In other words, Rio Tinto was thoroughly beaten, that they were beaten and bloodied and bruised, and they lost the war and the Bougainvillians won, but almost like a cockroach, they keep on coming back mm-hmm. and you can't really mm-hmm. kill them. And the importance, I think, of that is to say, unless there is serious in Papua New Guinea, but certainly elsewhere, then in Papua New Guinea particularly, unless you have um, decent, enforceable, transparent laws that actually allow some kind of community input into mining, in other words, if you actually allow or give um, access to locals to be able to gain money or benefits from mining, personally, I think there should be no mining at all. And in Bougainville many locals say agriculture and tourism could certainly make as much money as mining could be. Um, and I saw this in country after country after country, including, for example, in Afghanistan, where this was this year, I'm working on a film at the moment also called Disaster Capitalism with an American filmmaker called New Writer, and we're making a film that's about 90% shot, and we're looking at the moment for um, funding to finish the film to do a rough cut of the movie. Mm-hmm. But we're in Afghanistan this year, and... Very much ties to Papua New Guinea, what many listeners don 't know is that there are under the ground in Afghanistan roughly three to four trillion dollars trillion dollars of untapped resources
0: oh no, you don 't say
1: <laughs> absolutely we 've been exactly. wondering it's almost like. Exactly. It's almost like, you know, Afghanistan couldn't have more problems, right? And it's about to have this problem as well. Yes. So when the Soviets were occupying the country many years ago, they discovered this but didn't do anything about it much, and then, of course, they got kicked out of the country. The Americans come in in 2001, and I'm not saying the Americans came for that reason alone. They did not. Um, I think it was mostly revenge for 9-11, but the resource issue was certainly there. And they also did a survey and discovered anywhere between, as I said, 2 to $4 trillion of resources. The reason this is relevant is for a few quick reasons. One, the Afghan government and the U.S. government now says that the mining industry could sustain that country, Afghanistan, when, as it's happening already, U.S. and foreign aid is decreasing. That's one argument. Secondly, the U.S. government in the last decade has spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars supporting, trying to support, so they claim, an indigenous Afghan mining industry that's both backing Afghan mining companies and foreign mining companies to get access to Afghan resources. It's been an absolute disaster, like an unmitigated disaster. Mm. And we, my film colleague and I, went to an area about one hour from Kabul, the capital, called Logar province. It's controlled by the Taliban and there is untapped copper there the largest untapped copper in the world. And it's owned by the Chinese, would you believe? And they're pretty desperate to get mining as quickly as possible, but mostly because, for obvious reasons, the security situation is so bad, corruption is right, it hasn't happened. So the connection I'm making, I guess, between Papua New Guinea, Afghanistan, these are, in some ways, incredibly rich nations, very, very rich. And unless we're aware of the agendas that are being put in place, and the corporations and individuals who are almost desperate to leave these countries not independent. They're independent only on paper. Afghanistan claims to be independent. Papua New Guinea claims to be independent. But in reality, they're not. They are controlled by foreign forces, not just military forces, but economic and political forces. And many people in those countries, if you go there and speak to them, really their requests are pretty simple. We want freedom from you. Is in freedom from the West, freedom from U.S. military, or freedom from outside corporations who are making money off our backs.
0: Mm-hmm. Disaster Capitalism Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe by Anthony Lowenstein, our guest this hour. Um, one is, I saw not that long ago, but I can't think of the name of the movie, a movie about uh, Bougainville. I actually have been aware of this for quite a few years because i used to listen to shortwave radio on radio australia you did used to uh, oh, talk wow. about that do, do you do you know what movie i'm talking about
1: do you know, you know the name it's funny as you say that to me i'm literally googling it i know the film but i can't remember the name
0: yeah um, yeah the name yeah, doesn't uh, suggest um anyway there is oh,
1: yeah. so, no, Here we go here we go it's called mr pip
0: right Right.
1: Yeah, it, it's basically based on a book. It's based on a book which does touch on the war. Actually, it's with Hugh Laurie, an English actor who was in uh, the US TV show House. For uh, listeners who might know him,
0: yeah. Uh uh-huh. Well, it is available in the uh, Madison Public um, Library. It 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 doesn't, by any stretch of the imagination, tell um, the whole story or the level of devastation. But I think it is interesting, and it gives you. uh, Also, among other things, a visual feel to really how beautiful Bougainville is, but also you mentioned Rio Tinto, and um, they were trying to mine up here in um, northern Wisconsin, and the population rose against them, and they did leave after a while, but... um, More recently, um, there has been an attempt to mine the Pinocchio Mountain Range also in uh, northern Wisconsin. And again, Mm -hmm. um, the Native Americans whose uh, reservation is on these lands rose up against it. A lot of other people rose against it. We we actually, this show was the one that revealed the intent um, to start the mine um, to at least people around here, but interestingly enough, as you said, they keep coming as cockroaches. So that company yeah. has left, but now there's again discussion of, oh, maybe we should do it anyway. So, mm. yeah, just agreeing yeah, with you. Yeah.
1: Um, Indeed, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't know about the particular detail in that area, but it sounds like that's sadly very, very common. Yes.
0: Yes. We have uh, Thomas with um, a question or comment for you. Hi, hey, Thomas, you're on the air.
1: Uh, Thank you for the program. My question or comment is regarding the number of people who seem to be surplus as far as the government or the corporations are concerned, and that seems to me is what we do with them is put them in jail or prison camps or whatever, and I'd like like your response on that. Thank Mm -hmm. you for the program.
0: Yes, thank you. And you actually say in the intro to your book, uh, Anthony, I'm quoting here, in the 21st century, the vulnerable have become the world's most valuable commodity. I think that um, tails in nicely with what Thomas just said, um, if you want to respond to him.
1: Yeah, look, very much so. Thank you for that. I think really that the the issue here is that, as I was saying before, that when it comes to, for example, um, mostly low-level drug crimes in the U.S., as listeners will be well aware, there has been a policy for roughly 30 years or so to lock people up often for life um, or if not for a very, very long time. And there has been some small movement during the Obama years. I think, this in fact, just very soon it was announced this week that Obama is releasing 6,000 non-violent uh, drug offenders um, back into society, which is a very small amount, but it's an incredibly encouraging start. Hopefully a lot more will happen in the coming years. I mean, that so many people who are behind bars here, both in public institutions, but also private institutions, should not be there. Um, and I think there really has been, I mean, you know, in some ways I'm preaching to the converted here. I mean, if you're, If you're a minority, if you're an African-American, you know this issue. You have a family member or someone you probably know who is affected by this. Let's not forget, the stats in America are that roughly one in three African-American men are likely to have some association with the prison system. One in three. Now, not all of them are going to be in privatised detention camps or prisons, but many of them are. And the thing that I think really goes to the heart of the problem here is that even when even when a range of facilities are shown to be incompetent, even when prisoners die in their care, even when mental health is so bad, even when the food is shown to have maggots in them, despite all that, states continue to give these corporations more and more prisons. Having said that, having said that, in the last year or so, there actually has been a small but encouraging sign that some Democrats and even some Republicans have woken up to the fact that a mass incarceration culture simply doesn't work. Putting aside the human cost of it, which is devastating, if you're not getting value for your money. I mean, essentially, if you look at it from a purely economic perspective, I don't think that you should. But if you do, and Republicans like to always talk about the economic seemingly above the human... The truth of the matter is that you're keeping on locking people up. You're not reducing drug intake. You're not reducing drug use. You're not reducing drug trafficking. In fact, drug use has never been higher of a range of um, Class A drugs. So there's been, I think, an awakening after decades and decades of playing on people's fears to say, rather than solving this problem, we can just lock people up and somehow throw away the key. The private prison industry has worked on that brilliantly from its perspective. And the sad reality is until there, I think, there is a realisation that these sort of corporations actually are part of the problem. In my view, is they should not be able to donate money to a presidential mm-hmm. candidate. I mean, it's, it's legal to do so, as I said. So... It's not like they're, I mean, who knows what they're doing behind the scenes, but certainly at the moment they're giving money totally openly. It's not really a secret. They don't really publicise it or want to talk about it, to be honest. If you ask them about it, they don't want to talk about it. The candidate doesn't want to talk about it. So it's a bit of a kind of dirty, open secret, if you know what I mean. Yes. But the truth is they're not doing it secretly. Um, That, to me, needs to stop because ultimately the decisions to reduce a mass incarceration culture... Well, it has to come from the grassroots, but it also has to come from politicians who have to make the brave decision to realise that decades and decades of their own policies have not worked. And I'm yet to see many politicians who will actually stand up and say, you know what, I've been wrong for 30 years. Some do, most don't.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk about Haiti, Anthony.
1: So Haiti, for listeners to be aware, is very close to the US. It is the poorest nation in the hemisphere. It's essentially really been under a form of U.S. occupation for a century. I mean, it's not; there hasn't always been U.S. troops there, but the country itself oh. has not been independent, really, arguably, for at least 100 years. I focus particularly on the country post-earthquake. There was an earthquake in mm-hmm. January 2010. It was devastating, and it killed no one knows exactly how many, but anywhere between 100,000 and 300,000 people. Um, the focus for me, though, was the aid in development that came after that, so there was a mass, mass, mass influx of aid groups, of development groups, of contractors, of the U.S. government, of other governments, but especially the U.S., and a WikiLeaks cable, which I quote in the book, and I talk about WikiLeaks, in fact, through the book extensively. I think it's an essential, wonderful source of information for any journalist or citizen, that the U.S. ambassador at the time in Haiti wrote a cable, which has since been released by WikiLeaks, essentially saying, in his words, not mine, there's a gold rush on. Now what he meant by that was there's business opportunities here to be had. There's the ability to make money from this complete catastrophe. And the result was very, very clear. You had countless corporations going in there to make money. You had a number of USAID, which is America's aid arm, give money to a range of US contractors. Many of them had no experience or um, expertise in Haiti or countries like that. And despite the U.S. government pledging, if you ask them today, they will say, we pledged $10 billion for Haiti. That may be true on paper, but the truth is that so much of that money stayed in the U.S. because it was given to U.S. contractors. In other words, I'm not suggesting every U.S. contractor is corrupt and doesn't do a good job. Some of them do a very good job. But the problem is, time and time again in Haiti, locals were not employed. Locals were not empowered. Locals were pretty pissed off, frankly, that they saw all this money coming into the country and all these contractors staying in lovely, not five-star hotels, but at least very nice you know, nice apartments, rents shot up, food prices went up, and they didn't get any benefits from that. So, of course, they're going to be pretty upset about that. So I go into detail in the book through my investigation, both having been there twice, but also my other investigations just um, through various contacts to show how we need to be far more questioning of the aid and development model. I'm not suggesting that all NGOs, non-government organisations, are not doing a good job. There are definitely NGOs doing some wonderful work in Haiti and elsewhere. But I think we have this sense, maybe even more so on the progressive left side of politics, that NGOs are inherently good, that they're there in a conflict zone or in a disaster zone to do good. And many of them are. But many of them, frankly, are not. Many of them are for profit and many of them don't have expertise and many of them cause more problems than they solve because they don't really employ locals. All these things contribute to an environment um, that doesn't really give, A, the Haitian people much hope of changing. And here we are five years, five and a half years since the earthquake. And yes, when I was there last year, there were a few new roads and yes, there were a few new schools. I'm not saying nothing has got better, but the economic reality is it's incredibly poor, actually, and the Haitian government that the Washington elites support is incredibly corrupt. It basically hasn't really been governing for at least three years, and the solution that the U.S. government, both Obama administration, the Bush administration, and particularly Hillary Clinton, Bill mm-hmm. Clinton, and Chelsea Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, is to build industrial parks, industrial parks for Haitians to make cheap clothing so you can, you know, Americans can go and buy their clothes at Walmart or Kmart. That's the so-called US solution. And having looked at some of those centers, the pay is poor, the conditions are poor, not that many people are even employed at those facilities. So ultimately, um, I think there should be a lot of questions asked about the model that America is employing. But really, you know, when it comes down to it, it's because the US views Haiti as a client state. It's used it as a reliable source of cheap clothing. That's the unspoken reality. I mean, Hillary and Bill Clinton, of course, don't say that. They say they pledged to Haiti and they love Haiti. And in fact, they got their honeymoon in Haiti, would you believe, many, Mm. many years ago. But policies that they have enacted particularly, and I'm not just focusing on um, the Clintons, but they're a key factor, have been disastrous for Haitians. I mean, the metrics of what they're doing has not worked. They haven't created jobs. They haven't really helped people at all. So to me, I think I'm really saying in the book and also in the film that we're doing, just for people to not not give money to aid organisations, but just to be a lot more questioning about where that money goes.
0: Hmm. And um, I want to talk in the last few minutes that we have here, um, both about the um, refugee crisis in um, Europe and about Greece. So, um, let's quickly look at the refugee crisis and and how does that fit into that model of disaster capitalism? It seems to me, in every way, you know, starting with why people are fleeing their own countries and all the way to detention camps in europe it is um yeah it really works doesn't it
1: absolutely i mean obviously for most listeners will be aware that there have been and this year has been the largest um, well the un in fact said a few months ago that there is now the largest number of uh, refugees in the world since the second world war um, there are roughly 50 to 60 million people looking for something, for security, for safety. I mean, it's an incredible number of people. Let's not forget that Syria as a society has collapsed. I mean, half the country has fled. There's internal refugees. I mean, Syria no longer tragically can even be called a country. It's just completely collapsed. Iraq is not that dissimilar. Um, so the massive flow of refugees into Europe, smaller numbers coming to Australia and the U.S., but particularly to Europe north, from North Africa and the Middle East, is a wonderful business opportunity for people who see it that way. So, for example, the European Union are forcing various member states, Greece, Italy and others, to impose quite draconian policies. So, for example, forcing money that they are giving to these countries to be used for surveillance, to, to hire Israeli drones to monitor uh, borders, to certainly in some countries, including the UK, British government uh, in prisons and warehouses, countless immigrants from various places around the world. These are centres run by companies that behave incredibly badly, G4S, Serco, which are two of the largest British security companies. They have influence and work all around the world. To me, the refugee crisis really goes to a massive failure of imagination. That I think there is a belief in some parts of Europe, especially the European Union, that you can almost put a band-aid over this, solution, over this problem and that'll solve the problem. And you obviously can't do that. I mean, the surge of people who are coming will keep on coming because the problems that they're fleeing haven't stopped. The war in Syria is not about to stop tomorrow. This is going to go on who knows how long. Hopefully it does end, of course, it will eventually, but the war is ongoing. And to me, I think the real concern is that the European Union views, as I said, this, Um, problem as not something to deal with in a humanitarian way, but in a police and surveillance way. And the effect of that, I think, is not just on that issue, but also the ways in which, as I talk about in my book, they have imposed the most appallingly repressive austerity on Greece, resulting in huge social problems for civilians there, is that the belief that many on the left and some on the right had in the European Union, a unified European body, Mm -hmm. it's coming to an end. I'm not saying the EU is disappearing tomorrow. Of course, it won't. But there is a real, deep, profound existential crisis the EU is now facing. And I think a lot of people, as I said on the left and the right, for different reasons possibly, are really wondering whether they want to be ruled in a way or controlled by undemocratic, bureaucratic people from brussels who are mostly faceless and greece has been the really tail end of that because they've been suffering incredibly badly as i said before and i think that's i mean on one level that's kind of worrying because i'm not suggesting every european country's going to break up and it's going to be back to how it was before the eu that's hard to imagine happening in the short term but i think as the refugee crisis increases as more and more people will flow into europe what is almost guaranteed to happen and i'll finish on this point is what's happening partly in Greece, which is the rise of the far right, of neo-Nazis. Mm-hmm. And I think in America that sort of seems maybe a pretty crazy foreign idea, but in Greece, the Golden Dawn political party, I talk to, talk to, talk to them in my book, I spent time with them, which was not ideal, but you know, as a journalist, that's part of my job. Mm-hmm. They are the third biggest party in the parliament there. They are in parliament. They are the third largest party in the parliament, and across Europe, the neo-Nazi groups, are growing and surging in support. They're not about to maybe take office in every country, not at all. But as Europe flails or fails to deal with these kind of issues properly, it's very easy for people to be seduced by a simple message of the far right, namely the refugees' fault. Kick them out, we're going to be fine, I and mean, that's obviously delusional. But that's the simple message that many people find appealing.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, Diane, oh, Diane left us. Uh, she she called too late, unfortunately. Um, one minute, um, Anthony, to sum up.
1: Sure. So people can buy my book. It's called Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing and a Catastrophe. It should be available at bookshops, Amazon, various other independent websites. Yes, yeah, so I'll definitely encourage people to buy an independent bookshop if possible. Um, you can go to my website, which is at com. I'm also working on a film, uh, which we're in the process of trying to raise money to do post-production if people would like to support that or pledge. They can contact me. It's all through my website. My email is easy to find on there. And, yeah, I'm also on Twitter, and people can, people can find that stuff easily enough. It's all, it's all, it's all available. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm-
0: Thank you, Anthony, so much for joining us today.